This is WMPG 90.9 Southern Maine Community Radio from USM. In the Pocket, a show where BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, creatives, artists, and culturists come together and talk about their inspirations, share their narrative, and explore culture. You are listening to In the Pocket with Flo Edwards, and our guest today is Theo Green. He's an associate professor at Bowdoin, and he is an ethnographer, as well as an author. Please introduce yourself. Hi, um, my name is Theo Green. I am an assistant professor of sociology at Bowdoin College, living um, in Brunswick, and I live here in Portland, Maine. I've been living here for about five years now, which is crazy to think it's been that long. And you've been at the same position those five years? Yes. Nice. Yes. And so, um, as I was saying before, it's, it's kind of funny. It's, it, it, my st- I always say my stuff has been here for about five years. Um, but I was I did a sabbatical in between in Washington, D.C. to finish my book. So, uh, But I have been in the same job, which has been kind of awesome. Yeah. <laughs> when does, uh, does tenure come into factor? Yes, it does. Um, I'm one of the lucky few these days. So um, my goal um, is to, once my book is completed, um, I hope to go up for tenure um, either next year or the year after. So, yes, awesome. fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say, I need, I need I, I, that sense of permits will be lovely <laughs> once it happens. Yes, I'm sure you'll get it. So, uh, tell me a bit about the research process that you do for your books. Yeah. Um, so, my books explore um, queer placement. Um, and... Um, I'm an ethnographer by training, so I'm a someone who, I do interviews, I interview people, I do archival work and explore um, histories, which is often a lot of fun, um, going through um, some unexpected, um, you know, news articles to find, like, lovely jewels and information about LGBT people. But um, the bulk of my work is actually going and doing observations at places, seeing what's going on, what happens. Um, I often joke with people that um, my job is so hard, like I go to Blackstones, right, and it's research, right? <laughs> then I get paid to do it, you know, or go to a pride parade or a pride festival or get paid to go, you know, one of my projects, I was thinking about when I was doing a study of resort town, LGBT resort towns, right? And so, like, that requires me to go to them. Oh, it's such a hard life. <laughs> I know, like sweating here for you, like, oh, it's so hard. Though. Yes, it really is. <laughs> but, but you know, it's, 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 you know, the observation part is, is challenging, right? Because you have to keep your eye on a lot of different things. And then, you know, you take lots and lots of notes um, that you hopefully use to help um, illuminate something that people don't necessarily, I mean, ethnography is great because um, it helps track the things that people take for granted. So um, when I was doing my interviews in Washington, D.C. about gay neighborhoods, everyone kept saying, oh, you know, gay neighborhoods are disappearing. They're, you know, like everyone feel com- feels comfortable more than they want to. Um, you know, we don't need DuPont Circle, that kind of gay neighborhood. And 
then, you know, but then I can go back and list all of these things where I saw them at a particular event at DuPont Circle. And then I ask them, like, what do you do? And then they'll say, oh, well, you know, I get up in the morning and then I'll go to DuPont Circle, grab my cup of coffee on my way to work, you know, come back home, go to the gay cleaners, um, maybe hang out at the gay bar on Sunday and go back into DuPont Circle and read the gay, the gay paper, be around with the gay people. And I was like, for someone who says, you know, you can be anywhere, <laughs> you spend an awful lot of time at DuPont Circle. And they're like, yes. And so it's great for, be, for, for being able to like um, get those take it for granted kinds of um, interactions and things that, ha that go on, which is really exciting because um, we miss a lot in the world around us. We take it for granted so much, you know? I'm glad you are taking notes on what we take for granted. <laughs> like compiling all that, it's great. <laughs> So um, I didn't realize that you'd be doing a lot of interviews. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. It is. I had, I've had an opportunity at this point. Um, my dissertation, the book is based on the dissertation. So over the course of 10 years, I've interviewed about maybe 150 people um, in both DC and Chicago. And I've just started a project here in Portland. So I got about 10 or 12 interviews just to kind of get a sense of like what the landscape is and what, and what, and what, um, you know, how people sort of see the queer community. Um, and it's good because A, you get these histories from people, especially I think people of color who often get ignored or overlooked by like a lot of mainstream studies of LGBT life. Um, and at the same time, you also get really great hints and tidbits about, you know, places that people that are off the maps, off the radars, right? Like where were all the great cruising places? <laughs> or, <laughs> or, 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 you know, some of the clubs where people were actually, um, you know, that, that, you know, people really were hanging out at, or, or how, you, you know, they navigated police, you know, interacted with the police in certain places and spaces. And, and again, um, it, it, it's a nice way to confirm some of the things I observe as well, right? It's a second pair of eyes. So sometimes when I do those kind of gotcha questions where I'm kind of like, well, my observations show this, and they're like, oh, well, you know, there is some of, you know, that dynamic happening and going on. And so, um, yeah, it's really fun to talk to people. It's a beast to try to transcribe all those interviews, right? <laughs> which I do, um, which I do on my own. Um, but it is it is so worth it to go out there and talk to people and get their sense of, get their perspective and their experience and um, yeah. Um, for the courses that you teach, what what subject material do you focus on? That's a good question. So I study I. So I say I study queer people in cities, and I teach about queer people in cities. But I teach um, urban sociology um, and, and things that are close to urbanism. I always say that, I tell my students that if they call Portland a city, I would fail them, because um, it's not a city, um, but it's urban. Um, I teach courses in sex, on sexuality, um, on masculinities, um, race, class, gender. Um, so, um, I teach classical theory, intro to sociology, those classical kinds of things as well. Um, I'm really excited because I'm preparing a course on um, Du Boisian sociology on W.E.B. Du Bois, which is really kind of cool because wow. um, the discipline is beginning to like reclaim Du Bois as a father of sociology. And what that actually means is um, scholars are taking his writings that are 100 years ago, you know, over 100 years old, and really are finding cool ways of thinking about how it's relevant today and how it's a foundation for like you know the social world in which we live in right now and so it's great to be a part of that moment too um 
So I, yeah, I, I it's, I can't wait to, <laughs> I'm in a candy store. I was like, give me a chance to, you know, when can I teach this? I'm also, I was supposed to teach it this year, but with the pandemic and the online, I was like, no, I want people to be in the classroom, feeling that aha moment, getting that, that kinetic energy of understanding and discovering things for the first time. So um, hopefully next year, fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. That sounds really <laughs> exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what's the name of that class going to be? It's going. It's been, it's, been a, um, it's called Du Bois and the Sociological Imagination. Okay. So yes. Yeah. So if you ever interested in reading readings on Du Bois, I have a great so I'll have a great syllabus for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. No, it, like it, it's really funny. Like a, a quick vignette about uh, about something um, that I discovered, which is really awesome. Um, you know, most people when they think of Du Bois think of like the souls of black folk, right? Double consciousness, that two-ness. Um, I discovered um, in a sign this year, the gift of black folk, um, which thinks about like the role of black people in contributing to like American culture and American life. And so like for him to have an essay that says like, you know, black music, right? Like the Negro spirituals and all this is American music, right? And it's actually the foundation of American music. It's like, that's so true, right? Like, if you think about the fact that, you know, most other European traditions, or white traditions came from European countries, or they, or they appropriated them you know, from black folk, right? Um, and yet, you know, you have, you know, the one thing that, that arose and emerged because of the American experience that slaves had to endure because of slavery, right? And, and how they incorporated that into their music um, is actually American music. And then for someone like Ken Burns to sort of think about, talk about country music and think about its African roots, right? Like, you know, the banjo is an African instrument, right? Like, that's really powerful to say, you know, we can't erase the, the black contributions um, to American history, American culture, um, simply because of the people who tell that story, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and, and people, are, again, are taking that material and using it in such wonderful ways. So it's, it's exciting. Nice. Uh, I'm liking thinking about W.D. Boyce being not necessarily a founder of uh, sociology, but at least from the American perspective, maybe. So, is that something? Yeah, I mean, I think he is, I mean, he was the first one to do, Philadelphia Negro in 1899 is one of the first studies that actually uses a statistical science, right? Um, he was engaging a lot of methods that, you know, a lot of the white scholars in Chicago ultimately use, and then, um, you know, Robert Parker, the Chicago School in the 1900s, preferred Booker T. Washington. And if you remember, Booker T. Washington and Du Bois were in debate about what black emancipation really meant at the time. And so, um, you know, Robert Park and the Chicago School, which is often credited as like the founding, um, uh, founding school in the American tradition the University of Chicago, um, managed to sort of marginalize and minimalize W.E.B. Du Bois's contributions. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's only been probably the last 20 years that um, people began to start to rethink and look at his work and situate him alongside, like, Karl Marx and Max Weber and the Chicago School Sociologists. Um, so to be able to sort of, again, rewrite it in a way that sort of, you know, gives a middle finger that, yeah, you know, we can look at the Chicago School and what they accomplished which was which was great right the work was really great but you know it was also built on this sort of uh, on this understanding that black people should accommodate to like white rage <laughs> um it's it's really um 
it's really powerful intervention. Like that's sort of reclaiming history. So, so I love it. Awesome. I'm so glad you're a part of that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you gave me this great article about, and not that Doe D. Boys, um, I mean, it was basically right after slavery. And so this original drag queen was born um, a slave and mm -hmm. then was emancipated. Yes. And can you tell me more about... William Dorsey Swan. Thank you. Yes. Um, and so, you know, as we talk about, like, Stonewall and we talk about, um, you know, George Chauncey in Gay New York, right, that looks at white history, um, LGBT history, we often take for granted the fact that um, Black LGBT people have been um, around and have been thriving in, in communities for just as long as, as white gay people have. And so um, one of the great stories is, is someone like William Dorsey Swan, who people refer to as the queen, right? He, was, he, he referred to himself as the queen of drag, right? <laughs> um, but he was born in Maryland in 1860. Um, and, you know, so he was born a slave. And when he was emancipated, he lived in Washington, D.C., and in the 1880s was known for throwing these wonderful parties, right? With other, where, you know, men were dressed in women's clothes and um, they would, you know, the drag balls and, and these other kinds of things. It was a great space for LGBT people to sort of come together and hang out. And he's known as the earliest one so far because his story has been documented again and again by um, the police records. He's, you know, police often raided his home um, there was once he was served 10 months in prison for um, what was, was quote, um, keeping a disorderly house, which was a euphemism for having a brothel. Um, but, and he ultimately retired um, in the early 1900s um, from that kind of public presence. And, and apparently his brother um, spent the next 50 years designing clothes for drag performers. So that's really cool. But what I think it, it, what his story indicates is, you know, as much as we want to say that Black people are homophobic historically, Black communities were some of the most accepting spaces for LGBT people, particularly Black LGBT people. Um, there's another great story um, in my research in Washington, D.C. Um, about a man that was arrested on New Year's Eve in 1899 um, for, for coming home from a party um, in women's clothing. And he goes in front of the magistrate, right, about to sentence him to like six months of hard labor. And he goes, it's such a shame because you, your dress is so beautiful. <laughs> like, you know, you have this pink, you know, like height of fashion, the pink dress, pearls and everything else. And that's one of the great things about these, these news stories. Like they describe like how high fashion, like these, these, drag, these drag queens are. Um, and yet um, they're about to go into prison, right? Because they're violating all sorts of laws in terms of what is appropriate where, you know, etc. So I like how you mentioned that black people are kind of known for being homophobic. When did that come about or right. how? Um, so there, so there, I think you can locate it in the two important periods of time. So um, in the 1920s, when um, you know, during the Harlem Renaissance, um, Harlem was also a really great hotbed of gay energy, right? Um, you know, George Chauncey in his book, in New York, he interviewed a lot of white men, gay men that would go to Harlem. And they were like, yeah, the village was fun, but Harlem was so much better, right? They would go there for all the parties. It was opportunity, you know, the black and tans, the jazz music, Harlem, you know, Harlem, like Toronto, Chicago, or Sean, D.C., during Prohibition, 
were also known as spaces where police were not super like surveilling, right? So, you know, alcohol can flow free in a lot of these speakeasies and these kinds of black and tans that were really popular at the time. Um, but um, the black church, right, were, were often big op- opponents to um, the kind of flamboyance that this lifestyle presented, right? Because, not because of necessarily sexuality, but because um, it was often an affront for black respectability politics, right? And so um, you're thinking about like Adam Clayton Powell preaching from the pulpit about like the evils of homosexuality. And in those times, it was often framed as the whites coming into Harlem infecting our black men with this disease, right? Despite the fact that, of course, black queer women also participated at some of, you know, you know, people like Gladys Bentley, right, and, and some of the great Ethel Waters and some of these really great black jazz performers and having these wonderful shows also had queer relationships that we don't talk about, think about in the same way. Um, but during the, you know, once Prohibition ended, you know, and the Great Depression hit, um, you know, black and black people, because they were segregated in their neighborhoods, often found very accepting environments where they were able to navigate community. It wasn't until probably the 60s, right, where the black power movement really began to take hold, where you then began to see um, this kind of very strong um, homophobic turn like, take place, right? Um, Eldridge Cleaver, Blacks on Ice, Souls on Fire, um, where he talks about um, the white men, you know, the black man sort of bending over and taking the black man's seed and how, um, you know, homosexuality is kind of a disease that infects um, the communities, etc. And so I think the modern manifestation of black homophobia can be located at that particular point. Um, and yet again, right, the paradox, I think, which is so interesting is you may have the black church, which, you know, became after a lot of the riots devastated cities, one of the sole institutions within the community preaching about it in the pulpit. And yet you had, you know, gay deacons and gay choir ministers. And, you know, again, the, the ways in which people knew their lifestyle, it, you know, in the community, but it was something that you didn't talk about. And I think part of, as we think about like that black homophobia, right, or, or, or whatever, it's really questioning, um, what that actually means because coming out may not necessarily look the same as it does for white queer folk we don't necessarily have to say it we sometimes bring our girlfriend to the barbecue or bring our boyfriend to the barbecue and everybody's like cool with it um and so again like what is the language how do you navigate like these particular spaces when we know that you know it still persists um we we, we still i mean there is you know, blacks are no more homophobic than their white counterparts, to be honest with you, right? right. But it's a certain kind of power in claiming that black people are threatened by homosexuality. And the power is for... In terms of... I guess it depends on context, right? So you think about 2008, right? The election of Barack Obama in California. Um, where his election drove out lots of African Americans, and it was the same time that Proposition 8 was passed, right, which sort of banned same-sex marriage. And a lot of people tried to put two and two together and blame African Americans for, you know, the defeat, you know, for the passing of this proposition, right? 
And that again was one of those moments where you saw this really viral, you know, this really violent sort of um, discourse around black homophobia, like black homophobia, like take it to come to the forefront. And you, you know, I think it's it, it is a way to sort of um, I say it's power because I think it, it erases queer people of color, erases queer black folk, it erases our voices it erases what we do and how we navigate like families and and our lived experiences in these communities um and it takes away the fact that and it, and it diverts attention away from the incredible racism that black queer people have endured mm-hmm. over the course of the 20th century I mean, right on, yeah. you know what i mean um and so you know i think when, when, all, when the only voices that are coming out and making those claims are, right, predominantly white, cis, rewrite queer people of color back into the history, right, and give them a sense of power and a sense of agency, right? Because again, as much as you can talk stuff about black people not being part of the history, we were at Stonewall, right? <laughs> we were at Stonewall, and we were, and we were yeah. using our, we were using the, the language of the time right, just to stand and fight back, right? Like, no one, everyone does, you know, you can't connect the dots to the fact that the riots and rioting in cities, right, shapes the, the response of these black and, and Latinx trans people who are throwing bricks and are saying enough is enough, right, against police brutality? Come on. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Uh, they'll try to do it, yeah. You know, those repertoires matter, right? Like, like, like those, you know, those connections are really important. I, I mean, I see that as well in terms of how we think about drag today, right? Like, so much of the language we use, right, comes from not only the drag scenes, which were the drag balls, which were um, um, so many of them were were. were run and operated by black folk, but the ballroom scene, right, which also emerged as a response to, you know, what happens when whites took over these communities, right, and and homophobia sort of, you know, and, and, and racism sort of reared its ugly head in terms of what's beautiful and what's not, right? Um, Netflix had a wonderful documentary called The Queen um, that looked at a drag show in New York, Miss Drag America pageant, 1967, and, um, at the very end, right, this this little frail white girl won. And Crystal LaBeja from the legendary House of LaBeja, right, has this epic rant at the end of it. You don't watch for the, I mean, it's a good documentary for, like, seeing what it's like. But you really watch it for Crystal LaBeja coming at the, the, the racism of this pageant and the judges, right, for not accepting, um, you know, black beauty, right? And it's one of those reasons that inspired her to start, right, the ballroom scenes in New help start the ballroom scene in New York. And so again, like, you know, it's 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 a great time to be in because we really are at this moment where we are um, starting to tell our own stories and really reclaim our place in this great, wonderful history. Yeah, and it's great. It's it is great, great history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that is the best scene in Queen for sure. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, as I saw that poor child won with that really like dry, thirsty wig. Kind of like, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get it. <sighs> uh, is there another um, historical moment that is kind of fresh on your mind that you'd like people to know about? Or? Um, 
Oh my gosh, you're so, so clean. I can look at that. Um, one of the things that I often, <clears throat> one of the things that my book is working to push back against is thinking about this understanding of the closet, right? Um, and like when the closet's been constructed. So, you know, the story usually goes that um, the 1920s were this really great hot heyday of gay visibility. Prohibition happens. And with Prohibition and the opening of the bars, like one of the things that a lot of municipal governments did was kind of close, was kind of um, place all these laws in place about homosexual bars and homosexuality, right? Um, and of course, with liquor flowing freely in white neighborhoods, the white people come out of Harlem's and the Barnesville's as well. But you don't hear much about those communities. Um, since then, right? Like, yes, white queer life in cities and main parts of central business districts were very much, um, you know, closeted. And, and, you know, there was a lot of vice and a lot of surveillance happening in those spaces. But if you went into the Black communities, the Black neighborhoods, right, there were still ways in which queer life throve. You know, the fact that Ebony and Jack, right, used to... Um, do um, pictorials of drag balls in the 40s and the 50s, oh. where there used to be drag parades in, in Chicago's South Side, where black people would take their family, their kids, to watch drag queens going up and down the street, right? Um, tells you that that you know again the response of communities of color, you know the rent parties and all these other kinds of of, of, of underground clubs where gay people and straight people sat side by side, right, and hung out together, really tells you a lot about um, the level of acceptance that African-Americans really had on the ground. And that even impacts, like, to this very day, right? So um, as much as we want to say, like, neighborhoods are homophobic, I could, um, you know, I did a lot of research in Shaw, which is historically African-American neighborhood, and... I talked to a number of, of elderly mothers, who the mothers of the neighborhood, who were there for many, many, many years. The fact that they could talk about their gay queer neighbors freely, that they, you know, they say hello to them, they watch out for the mail, when they come, you know, when the mailman, when the UPS person comes, you know, they're very leery of somebody who doesn't belong there. The, the kinds of things that mothers of the neighborhood did when we were growing up, right, in those, in those black communities. Again, tells you a different, like there's a different story of what happens on the ground than I think what is being told in this sort of bird's eye view of history, right? I think it's so important um, to, to, to realize that, right? And I think that it's not only, you know, again, we can't wait for the Ryan Murphys of the world to tell, to tell these stories, right? We have to... Um, you know, now is a wonderful time to be able to um, get our elders to have, you know, talk to them about what their experiences and what their lives are like. People that have been having relationships for 40, 50 years, right? And again, we'll be sitting in church. And again, we're not going to tell you about what they did Saturday night, right? And we'll use euphemisms to talk about their partner, right? Roommates, fill in the blank. But again, there was a certain level of acceptance there. I feel like I haven't dived up enough into queer history and probably part of the reason why is because I want to know that it's people that look like me a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that you are diving into that for us. So appreciate it. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what's the plug? How can people reach you? 
Um, so at, at some point, my book, um, titled Not in My Neighborhood, Gay Neighborhoods and Rise by Carrie Citizen, will come out. Um, but until then, um, I can be reached um, by email at tgreen at bowden, B-O-W-D-O-I-N.edu. Um, I also, if you look up the agreement at the Bowdoin website, you can find out more about me and what I'm doing. Um, and at some point, there will be a theogreen.com that I'm starting to put together, but it's not yet finished. Um, that will also have more information about me. So, um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to In the Pocket. Your host today is Flo Edwards, and our guest today was Theo Green. And you are listening to WMPG 90.9 Southern Maine Community Radio.